All right, if you have a Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two, open scroll. When I hear those pages stop turning, we'll pray. All right, Jesus, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for these young men and women. Uh, who have spent years uh, being discipled in your church and who are about to be sent into a world uh, where what they believe and what they've known to be true will probably be questioned, maybe pushed back upon, uh, may already, and if not already, will at some point uh, cause them to lose some status, uh, to lose some place with other people. Um, God, and that's not just true of them, that's true of us. And so, God, as we open your word this morning, as we see what Peter had to say to Christians who were in a tough spot, who were in a world where following you wasn't easy, wasn't cool, wasn't well thought of, God, would you give us courage to remain faithful? Uh, Would your spirit comfort us if we feel discouraged and hurt? Uh, And would the beauty of your word transform our lives? And if you would, take a moment and pray for yourself and ask the Lord to speak to you today. And if you would pray for me, that I would speak clearly and be helpful to you. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I went to Texas A&M University uh, down in Texas, if you didn't catch that. And before my freshman year, uh, so that summer before, most of the freshmen go to this thing called... Uh, Fish camp. If you didn't know, fish is a derogatory term for a freshman because you're fresh meat that's swimming in the sea. So all the freshmen get shipped off to fish camp, and at fish camp, you get indoctrinated and brainwashed. I mean, you, you learn about the school and how we do things. Just... Well, someone laughed. Cool. Great start to the morning. Uh, and at fish camp at A&M, uh, we learned all of the yells that we would yell at football games and basketball games. We learned when to wear hats inside, when to walk on grass, when not to walk on grass. Uh, we learned how to do the two-step. That's a, that's a thing in Texas. You got to be able to do it. Don't ask me how to do that by myself. Um, give me 10 minutes after the service, then we can talk. But at the, going into fish camp, all I knew was Aggies wore maroon. That was about it. And they stood up at football games. The whole stand time in the sun. But at the end of fish camp, I knew we are the Aggies. The Aggies are we true to each other as Aggies can be. So we got to fight boys, fight, fight for maroon and white. I could keep going through the song, through the war hymn, through the yells, through the traditions, all of which I learned at fish camp. Now, if your son or daughter was considering Texas A&M, I think it's a great school. Trust me, we're not that crazy. Did going to fish camp make me an Aggie? No. Did putting on this ring make me an Aggie? No. I was declared to be an Aggie when I got that letter in the mail that said, congratulations, Justin Uri, you've been accepted to Texas A&M University. Whoop. Didn't know how that was going to go over. When I got the letter, 
I was an Aggie. I had been declared that who I was was forever changed. Justin Urie was no longer high school senior of Center, Texas. Justin was a Texas A&M Aggie. Did I know what that meant? No. But through fish camp, I became a bit more of an Aggie. I understood what we did at football games. I understood where to wear hats. I understood what grass to not touch, only to look at from a distance. I understood how to behave at a football game. I understood the proper way to yell and the proper way to ask your girl to dance. Now, I was already an Aggie before I was at fish camp. But through walking through fish camp, I learned what my identity was supposed to look like. I became more of who I already was declared to be. And that's what we're going to talk about today, becoming who you are. Becoming who you are. Now, that's really bad English, but it's really good theology. See, becoming is a uh, participle, present active participle. It's about what you're doing in the moment actively. I am actively talking, standing, pacing. We are becoming who we are. Now, who we are uh, gives us the connotation of something that we've already been made, something that I am. I am wearing a green shirt. I am wearing brown pants, but I am currently talking, standing, and remembering my next point. And today we're going to talk about becoming this process of who we've already been made. See, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are declared children of God. Right then, justified before the Father, forever and all of eternity, never to be changed. But if your life's like mine, from the moment I put my faith in Jesus, not all of my life, not all of my thoughts and uh, affections of my heart and actions of my hands looked like I was a child of God. Like there was some working out that I had to do. I had been declared who I was, beloved kid of the Father Most High. But my life didn't always match up with that. And I've been on this process, and we've been on this journey of becoming who we are in Jesus. And so today, we're going to talk about who we are and how we get there. So first, who, who are we? Well, Peter opens up, and Peter's writing to Christians in the dispersion. Uh, he's writing to a bunch of bit different little churches in Asia Minor, and he's talking to them about how they remain faithful to Jesus in a world that being faithful to Jesus isn't easy. Sound familiar? And so he starts off with who we are, and he tells them two things. He tells them that they're the temple of God, and they're the priesthood of God. In verses 4 through 8, Peter describes Christians as the temple of God. He starts quoting from the Hebrew Bible in in the book of Isaiah and the book of Psalms. That's what Peter's getting at when he talks about a spiritual house with Jesus as the cornerstone and foundation. It's what Peter means by Christians being living stones who are being built together. Verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, for, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So in all of that, Peter's telling them, you Christian, you group of Christians, you church, are the temple of God. And we'll talk about that here in a second. So first he tells them the temple, they're the temple. And second, he tells them that they're the priesthood. 
In verse 9, he continues, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What does that mean? Well, Peter identifies believers as the temple of God and the priesthood of God. That's who we are. What does that mean? Last time I checked, I didn't get a name tag somewhere and go, hi, my name is Temple of God. If you do that, that would be weird. Please don't do that. First, your identity as the temple of God means the presence of God is in you. If you're the temple of God, then that means the presence of God is in you. The temple was a building in the Old Testament. Uh, David wanted to build it. He was a king, uh, but God said, no, your son's going to build it, Solomon. And so Solomon built the temple in the book of Kings, and the Spirit of God came and descended upon the temple, and God literally lived in the temple. He was in the physical building of the temple like we're physically in this space right now. And that was a turning point in the story of the Bible, because for the first time in Israel's history, God's presence was somewhere permanent. Uh, For a long time, they didn't have access to God's presence. And then for a couple hundred years before this, God's presence was moving around in a tent that just moved from place to place to place. But for the first time in their history, as a nation and a people, they had access to the presence of God in one permanent place. They knew where he was. And through the temple, because they had access to his presence, they had the ability to cultivate intimacy, right? If you're trying to get to know somebody and they're always in and out of the office, you can never catch them. You can never nail them down. You can never talk to them. But if you want to get to know somebody, you're probably going to take them out to lunch. You're going to ask them to go out to coffee. You're going to get their phone number. You're going to spend time with them. And because they had access to his presence, they were able to have the ability to cultivate intimacy, They were the temple of God. Now, why on earth does that matter? Because access and intimacy leads to them being able to do what they were made to do, what you and I were made to do, to know God, right? Like, if I wanted to get to know Kelsey, which I do and I did, I didn't just, like, randomly run around A&M's ginormous campus hoping to bump into her and get to know her a little bit at a time. No, we went out. I took her on dates. We went to coffee. We went to dinner. We went to lunch. I did magically sometimes end hemp how find myself around her on campus because I might have figured out where she worked and when her shifts were. And I was just there. It was weird. But I invested in getting to know her. I found access to her presence so that we could cultivate intimacy with one another. Why? Because I wanted to know her. And eventually she wanted to know me. Took a little time, but we got there. And that's what Israel has the opportunity to do, to know God. And because you are the temple of God, you can know him. Like you have access to his presence, follower of Jesus, anywhere you go because he's in you. Like you can know the God of the universe because he's made himself known. And that's incredible. So first you're the temple of God, the temple of God. The, priest, the, the presence of God is in you. And second, you're the priesthood of God. If being the temple of God means the presence of God is in you, then being the priesthood of God means you are God's presence in the world. So if you're the temple of God, Christian, the presence of God is in you and is the priesthood of God when you leave this place and go to your works and your neighborhoods and your homes and a cracker barrel, you are taking the presence of God with you wherever you go. 
as a priest. The priest, that's what they did. They, they were the in-between between God and humanity. And that's what you get to do wherever you're going. You are the temple of God, taking the presence of God in you wherever you go. And you've been declared the priesthood of God, taking the presence of God into the world with you wherever you go. Verse 9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we go with the presence of God in us proclaiming what? That our life and our eternities have been changed by Jesus. Like it's that simple. The guy in John chapter 9, I was blind, but now I see. Like I once didn't belong to God. And now I do that once I, I didn't know the mercy of God. And now I do that once I was an orphan and now I'm God's kid. Like it doesn't have to be overly complicated that I wasn't a child of God. And now he's put his presence in me and put me in the world as his kid to tell of the goodness and grace that he's shown me. That's what we do as his temple. That's what we do as his priesthood. His presence is in us. And then he puts us in the world to take his presence to other people. We can know God and make him known. That's what we were created to do. That's what Adam and Eve's jobs was. That's what your and I's ultimate job was as human beings, is to know God and then to make him known wherever he places us and wherever he leads us. So that's who we are. Now, how do we become who we are? Because throughout the New Testament, it tells us things like this. We are holy. We are righteous. We're beloved. That we're a temple. That we're priests. And if I'm being honest, I don't always feel like that. Like, and if I'm being real honest, my life doesn't always look like that. I don't always look holy. I don't always look righteous. I don't always feel like the temple of God that's carrying the presence of God to wherever I go. Oftentimes, I feel the exact opposite of those things. I feel a little dirty. I feel a little unclean. I know the unrighteous side of Justin all too well. And so what God's saying about me and how I feel about me don't tend to line up. But that doesn't change that what God has said about me is true. He's declared that I'm his kid. He's declared that I'm his temple and he's called me a priest. So even when I don't feel like it or look like it or want to be one of those things, it doesn't change who he's made me. So how do we become who we are. Justin was declared an Aggie and he had to go through fish camp. So what's our fish camp? Well, it's this thing called sanctification. Sanctification. Uh, And it's three things. We're going to break down this theological concept. Three things. First, sanctification is a process. It's a process. It starts the moment you put your trust in Jesus and continues until God comes back or takes you home. It's going to be a lifelong process of what? Uh, Well, it's going to be a lifelong process and a lifelong partnership. Sanctification is a partnership, you working with God's spirit in you. It's a team effort. While you do nothing uh, to earn or, or cause your salvation, Jesus does that. God does that in you and for you. We work with God in this process called sanctification. Uh, it's what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work because God's working in you. We work together with God in this process of sanctification. So it's a lifelong process, and it's a partnership for what? For a pursuit. 
a pursuit, a pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of being set apart completely to God in our thoughts and desires and actions so that we would love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Sanctification is a pursuit of holiness, which is the main description of the temple and the priesthood. The temple was called holy. It was considered holy ground. The priesthood were called holy men. They were set apart. Why? Because the spirit of God was in the temple and God is holy. And when he showed up into that building in that place, he made that place holy. It was just bricks. But when God walked into the bricks, that place became holy. And when God set apart the priesthood, they were humans just like you and me. But when God set them apart and called them, they became holy. We're just flesh and bone. We're just a bunch of sinners. But when God put his presence in us and rescued us, God made us holy because God's holy. And when God called us out of darkness into his marvelous light to be his priest, he set us apart, not because of what we did, but because what he did on our behalf. He calls us holy and declares us holy even when we're not. God makes us holy, just like the temple, just like the priesthood. And so we pursue who we've already been made. We pursue holiness because we've been declared holy. Sanctification is the process. It's how we become who we are. It's how God works out what God has worked in. It's how God transforms us to be the people that he's already declared us to be. So how do you pursue sanctification? Well, there's two things inherent in the word pursue. Now, I know none of you would ever speed on the highway. You would never do it. But if you were, say, going like 95 down 55, you would, again, completely hypothetical. I know you're all good law-abiding citizens. But if you were speeding and you didn't see that state trooper who was just sitting right on that corner where you couldn't see him until you went, totally anecdotal. And then he comes behind you, woo, woo, pulls you over. He's in pursuit. He is leaving where he was, probably that nice shaded little space so he didn't get too hot. And he's coming after you because you have a lead foot. He's pursuing you. He's leaving one thing and heading towards another. He's going from somewhere to go to another place. And that's the same concept with sanctification. It's a pursuit. We're leaving something behind and we're heading to something else. Theologians call it mortification and vivification. Mortification and vivification. Mortification means to mortify or put to death. Vivification, like revive, means to bring to life. And sanctification, this process of becoming holy, is a two-part process. Some things got to die. You've got to leave some things behind. And some things got to be brought to life. Some things have to be chased after. Some things have to be pursued. And that's where Peter started in verse 1. He said, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We pursue sanctification. We pursue holiness by putting to death evil desires in us and breathing life into godly ones. We run from some things and we run to others. A couple of years ago, I called my dad and I admitted something that I was wrong. You'll get there one day. And I went, dad, I tried to go grass on my own and I'm really bad at it. So how do I grow grass? 
And he was about that quiet. He was like, what did you just, yes, dad, how do I grow grass? He's like, well, do you have grass or do you just have a bunch of weeds? Yes. Okay. So you got both. Yes. So you do have some grass. Yeah. Like the little, little green things that grow out of the ground. He's like, wow, we have a long way to go. So you have grass. Cool. Are you watering it? Well, it rains. Okay, kid, go buy a sprinkler and a hose, and you're going to begin to water it so many times a week for so long a week. Okay, cool. What about all the weeds? Leave them alone. But I want grass, not weeds. Yes, but you're telling me that you have grass and weeds. Yeah, so just water it, and then we're going to get you on a fertilizer schedule, and over time, you'll have more grass than weeds. So I don't touch the weeds. Justin, stop thinking about the weeds. So I began to water the grass. I began to put down a fall fertilizer. I began to put down like a pre-winter thing and a post-spring thing and began to water the grass. And then I bought the aerator. That was really fun. And this year, a couple years later, there's still weeds in the lawn, still there, but there's more grass. Victory. Now, why'd I tell you that? Because following Jesus a lot of times is like growing grass. There's weeds and there's grass. There's things we want to see, and there's things we don't want to see. And sometimes when we follow Jesus, we just focus on all the things we don't want to see, and we just begin to rip them all out, and then you're left with dirt. And if I would have ripped, ripped all of the weeds out of my lawn, I would have just had a dirt pile that the birds and the squirrels would have then came and made a nice little deposit in, and I'd had weeds all over again. Why? Because I didn't grow anything that I wanted to see there. I wouldn't have planted any seed. I wouldn't have watered any grass. I would have just gone on a rampage trying to fix my life and make it look better without Jesus. I ran from something, but I didn't run to anything. So Peter says, put away evil desires. But he doesn't just say, put away the evil desires. That's the moral equivalent of saying, don't touch the red button. Don't do it. That's the moral equivalent of saying, hey, stop sinning. Now all I think about is all the sin I've done. Cool. Well, that sounds like a good time. Click. No, it's not what Peter does. He tells us to run from some things, but to also run to some things. So what do you do? How do you run from and run to? Well, first, we have to know what we're running from. Peter brings up malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Malice is the desire to hurt someone with your words or deeds. Deceit's the desire to gain an advantage or preserve some position through lying and deceiving other people. Hypocrisy is the desire to not be known as you really are. Envy is a desire for some privilege or benefit that belongs to someone else, and you resent them because they have it, and you don't. Slander is a desire for revenge and self-enhancement, often driven by the deeper desire to deflect from one's own failings. Let me cut them down so I look better. And it's pretty dark stuff. Peter's not writing about crooked politicians and corrupt CEOs. He's talking about us. Like Christians. You put away slander. You put away envy. You put away malice. Like there's some dark stuff in me and in you. And we got to run from it and we got to get rid of it. 
because left unchecked, those things are just going to wreak havoc on your soul. Like you let envy fester for like a month and all of a sudden you're going to be real touchy and real persnickety with people that you like. So not only is it going to like poison your own soul, it's then going to poison the relationships with the people that you love and care about. You let that weed grow. It looks small right now, but it's going to go real, real deep into your soul. And when it blossoms and comes up, you won't recognize you and neither will anybody else. So what do we do? We run from and we run to. We run from the things that are going to hurt us and we run to the one that can heal us. Do the same thing with toddlers. When my little maven grace walks over to the electrical socket, wants to put her finger in, what do I do? Yes, I tell her no, but I don't just tell her no, because if I just tell her no and then pick her up, set her down six feet over, she's going to go, he's gone. Coast is clear. Every single time, what do I have to do? I have to teach her to run from something and then put a ring stacker in front of her and give her something I want her to do, something colorful and fun that probably makes noises. It's the same thing with us. We run from the malice and the hatred into the love of God. We run from deceit into the truth. We run from hypocrisy into the love of God that says we're accepted just as we are. We run from envy because we know in Jesus we have all that we need and can find contentment. We run from slander and we stop cutting other people down because we know that Jesus was cut down for us and we can accept our failures because he paid for them. We run from the darkness in the Jesus, the light of the world. How? How do we run? We run from some things. Like, that's easy. Like, this is bad. Run from it. It's putting the good in that can be really hard for us. We run first. We run in dependence. We run in dependence. Not independent, but in, new word, dependence. Paul writes, like newborn infants. Newborn babies do nothing. Like nothing. They cry. They cry some more. They poop on themselves. They eat. They sleep. And then they repeat. I've got a three-week-old. I love him. He's wonderful. But they do nothing for themselves. They can't. They're completely incapable. uh, Jack is 100% dependent upon Kelsey and I to meet his basic human needs. If we ignored him, he would die. We will not do that. We love this kid. But he's completely dependent upon you and me. And Peter says we're the newborn infant. We are completely dependent upon God to feed us, to watch out for us, to console us, to help us grow. Like, I can't do it on my own. You can't do it on your own. We are completely dependent upon him, just like a little kid. So second, how do we run? We run in dependence. And second, we run in community. We run in community. He says, like newborn infants, not newborn infant. There's a whole bunch of babies. It's plural, not singular. You were designed to pursue Jesus and sanctification together. 
The temple isn't built out of one stone, but out of many. A priesthood isn't just one dude. That's called a loner. It's multiple people. A kingdom is made up of citizens, not just a king. In Ecclesiastes 4, Paul says, uh, sorry, Solomon wrote, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Pursuing Jesus wasn't just meant to be you and him. Like, that's important. Don't lose that. But don't forsake him and us. Like, I need you, and you need me, and we need each other. I'm in a running group on Monday mornings. And to contradict the wonderful African proverb that I just threw out there, I find when I run with other people, I not just go farther, but I go faster. Because if I'm just left to my own self, I'm going to think about how much I need to breathe and how my knees hurt and how I really honestly hate running. It's the worst. I don't know why I do this on Mondays. But when I'm with a group of other guys... Not only am I going to run farther than I would have originally planned, I'm probably going to get there faster than I would on my own. The same is true with Jesus. Like when we follow him and are trying to walk in what he has for us, you're going to get farther with us than with just you. When you're trying to put some things to death and bring some things to life, You try to do it by yourself, and I promise, like, it'll work for a month. But the second month, the third month, the fourth month, when it gets hard, and it's just you, if you're me, you just give up and you give in. But there's strength in numbers. Like, you need me, and I need you, and we need us. So we run in community. God designed it that way. And third, we run in the Word. So we run in dependence, we run in community, and we run in the word. Peter knows our desires for God can only be nourished by the word of God. That the war for your heart, which is ultimately what this is, like desire starts here, and the war for your heart begins in your head. Because what you think about is what you love, and what you love is what you chase which is why we can't just run from some things and think about how we're not going to be envious people because then all you're thinking about is not being envious and you're just thinking about envy all the time. But when you think about, I've been given all things in Christ Jesus so I can be content. I've been given all things in Christ Jesus. I can be content. All of a sudden your mind is thinking about contentment and not about envy and affections for contentment. Affections for Jesus begin to stir up into your heart. And the words of your mouth all of a sudden start saying, no, I'm okay. And I mean it. Like, I've got what I need. Would it be nice? Probably. But I don't need it. Because I've got Jesus and he's given me everything I need. What we think about is what we love and what we love is what we chase. And so we run in the word. Because desires of the heart start with transformation of the mind. 
So, graduating seniors, you're going to walk out of here in a couple months, and there's going to be a lot of people who are going to try to tell you who you are, that you're a student, that you're an employee, that you're an electrical engineer to be, you're a cosmetologist. They're going to give you all these labels and try to tell you who you are. And those things are true. Don't get me wrong. And that happens for all of us. Employee, manager, boss, mom, dad, those are good things. But when we lose sight of who we are first, it's when problems begin to take hold. When we lose sight of the fact that we're children of God who are called the temple of God and a priesthood of God, then all of a sudden our lives begin to go sideways because we're not running to the right thing. And my hope for us, my hope for y'all, as we walk into the next season, is that you would become who you are. You would pursue the Son of God who came and died for you, that calls you his kid. He's the one that made you holy. He's the one that makes you righteous. He's the one that said, hey, I want to know you. Come get to know me. And as you walk with him through these next four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve years, until you get to the other side of that degree, you would walk into that school, you would walk into that classroom, you'd walk into that dorm, knowing the presence of God is in you so that you can be the presence of God wherever you go. You can be the presence of God in the classroom. Like you are the presence of God in the dorm room. You are the presence of God in the library. You are the presence of God when someone sits in the cosmetology chair. And God put you there. And God put us everywhere he puts us to be his presence in the world. Why? To make him known. Like the world needs Jesus. And I don't have to belabor the point. But God puts you where he puts you. And he's going to put you where he's going to put y'all. To be the presence of God in that place. That's what God wants for you. That's what God wants for us. And as we walk with him as his presence in the world, we're going to run from some things and we're going to run to others. And as we do this dance of running from and running to, we'll be more sensitive to his presence in us. And you'll realize that you're a lot lighter in the darkness than you thought you could be because you're breathing into life, the light of the world that God's put in you. And that's my hope for you. And that's my prayer for you. And that's my hope for us. There would be lights in dark places because the spirit of God, the light of the world has come and made his home in us and sent us into a dark place to proclaim hope and mercy and grace to a world that needs it. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we say thank you. Because you did what we couldn't and you've made us what we could never become. Because you lived and died and rose again, you can call us holy. You can call us beloved. You can call us righteous. So that even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't look like it, it's true. And so God, as we go into a time of response, maybe some of us just need to say, God, there's some things I need to run from that I've just been living in. Maybe some of us need to say, God, I need to run towards you and the things of you. 
God, I don't know where everyone's at, but you do. And I know what you want for them. I know your hope and your desire for them is that they would grow and flourish, that they would know they need you and they need one another. And they would pursue you, running from the evil desire and running to Jesus to see new desire birthed inside of them. I pray in Jesus' name.